Give ear to God's word, 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. John writes, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word to us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and that your word, as Isaiah tells us, never returns void. Lord, we ask that you would sanctify your people and save the lost. Give us grace by your spirit to be uh, diligent students of your word, to hear it rightly, and, and to not be hearers only, but to be doers of your word as well. For we ask all these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Well, um, if, you've, if you've been here through most of our studies in First John, uh, you'll know that there's a good bit of repetition in First John, as short as that letter is, only five chapters long, and so there's been a bit of repetition necessarily and with good reason in, the, in our preaching through this text, through this uh, letter. Um, and so I've had a reason to bring it up a number of times to kind of uh, remind us what John's purpose was in writing this book, in this letter. And his primary concern for the believers he's writing to, the churches he was writing to, his primary purpose for writing this letter was that we might, uh, those of us who believe in Christ, might be assured of our salvation. That is John's main reason for writing this this brief letter, is that people who know the Lord, have trusted in Christ, might have certainty, might have assurance that we are right with the Lord. Uh, He says that towards the end of the letter in the very next chapter, 1 John 5, verse 13, he says this, I write these things, that's everything in the letter basically, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, what? that you may know that you have eternal life. So God God wants us to know, if we're believers, he wants us to know and be sure that we are right with him and have eternal life through faith in Christ his son. But why, why was this letter necessary? John's burden is that we might have assurance of salvation. Why was this letter necessary for us to have that assurance, especially the first people that he wrote to early uh, in his day. Why was it necessary for John to write a letter like this one in order to help believers both then as well as now come to have a strong and certain sense of assurance of our salvation in Christ? If, If you've been a believer for any length of time, if you weren't converted yesterday, you probably already know uh, the answer to that question, don't you? It, it, I think it's a, a rare Christian. I, I, I want to say none, but I'm sure there's a few. It's probably a very rare Christian that has never struggled at any time in any way with, a, with doubt or with a lack of assurance. So if, if you've ever struggled with a lack of assurance, uh, you're, you're welcome to the club. You're in pretty good, pretty good company. Um, there are any number of reasons why genuine believers, actual, sincere, genuine believers, at times may find themselves struggling with doubts as to whether or not they're truly born again and whether or not they're truly reconciled to God and have the sure hope of heaven. Now, why, why is that? 
Maybe you can look back in your own life and think of times you've struggled uh, with, with such things, and you can think of maybe sometimes the reason for it. Oh, I remember what it was. It was this. Something happened in my life, maybe some kind of sin or temptation. There are many different reasons for these things. The, our Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 18, has a whole section. That whole chapter is on the assurance of salvation. Sounds like our, the Westminster Divines, our fathers in the faith, were pretty... I thought this was a pretty important topic for us to understand rightly. And there's a a section in that chapter that deals with why this happens. It says this. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse or different uh, various ways, shaken, diminished, and intermitted as by negligence in preserving of it, by falling into some special sin which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Yet they are never utterly destitute of that seed of God and the life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which by the operation of the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived and by the which, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. So this is not something new to us. It's not something new to our own day or age. John, in the first century, wrote about it. The Westminster divines uh, felt the need, uh, were convinced of the need for this to be put in our founding uh, documents of, of our Reformed faith. And I think that's very instructive, even that, that part that we just Red. But there's another cause, uh, which I think is the primary one that John uh, is dealing with in this letter, and that is the influence of false teaching. Now, false teaching often leads to temptations and sins and whatnot, and so there's a connection with all these, these things. But I think false teaching is the reason that John has to bring it up in this particular case. False doctrine, heresy, false gospels. They are harmful and always have been harmful to the purity and peace of the church. And that is because they are harmful to the purity and peace of individual Christians. It is not without reason, as we saw last uh, Lord's Day, that the Apostle Peter, in the text we looked at last Sunday, talked about false teachers bringing the phrase he used, destructive heresies. Now, sometimes we, I think we fall into this uh, laziness of thinking where we think, well, somebody believes something different or they're teaching something different. It's false teaching. I don't agree with it, but, you know, what's the harm? What does it really matter what somebody teaches or believes? Um, Peter did not hold that opinion. He called heresies heresies. He called them destructive, 1 Peter 2, verse 1. Uh, false teaching, heresy, false doctrine tends to undermine the purity of our faith first. In other words, it undermines the purity of what we believe. It also tends to undermine what we, how we are to live as well. And those two things are interrelated very closely. That's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6.3 says this. He talks about the importance of, quote, preaching the doctrine, he says, doctrine which is according to or in accord with godliness. In other words, Paul would have the people in the churches, have the believers in Christ in the churches, in some ways identify the false teaching by its fruits. If someone's doctrine leads to more ungodliness, Paul would say, 
big flashing red light. There's something wrong there. You may not be able to identify the exact error at the time, but there's something amiss or something awry if teaching leads away from godliness in some, in some way. And so false teaching undermines the purity of our faith, what we believe. It undermines the purity of our lives, how we are to live according to godliness. Uh, and so we're going to see this morning, Lord willing, at least three things, and they're going to be kind of related in many ways from our text. The first thing is, we know that we have peace and fellowship with God primarily in our text here because God, he says, has given us of his Holy Spirit. So one of the ways that we are to have assurance is the knowledge and certainty that God has given us who believe of his Holy Spirit. The second thing, which is part of that, is we subsequently know that God has given us of his Holy Spirit by two things in our text. First, uh, because we confess that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. That is the fruit and effect and work of the Holy Spirit within all who believe. And the second thing, which is our third point, sorry for any confusion there, is that we also know that God has given us of his Spirit because we abide in the love of God. So there's, there's the progression of, of John's argument, so to speak. We know that we have fellowship with God. We abide in him and he in us because what? He has given us of his Holy Spirit. How do you know he has given us of his Holy Spirit? Two, at least two things. There are others in the letter as well. But the first one is that we confess the true faith. We confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world and because we abide in the love of God. So first things first, our first point. John tells us that the gift of God's Holy Spirit to us who believe is evidence or proof that we truly have fellowship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13 again. John says, it's a recurring phrase in the letter, by this we know. How are you to know? Here's how. By this we know that we abide in him, that's God, and he in us. And what is it? How do we know? Because he has given us of his spirit, that is the Holy Spirit. In many ways, that is the primary proof of our abiding in God and God abiding in us, that he's given us of his Holy Spirit. This is much the same thing that he said back in 1 John 3.24 when he says this, by this we know, there's that phrase again, by this we know that he, that is God, abides in us, how? By the Spirit he has given us, the Holy Spirit. So John is repeating it for our benefit. We, I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I tend to forget things. Uh, and so John is helping us to remember by repeating things over and over again in various ways throughout this short letter. The Apostle Paul says something very similar in Romans 8, verse 9. He says this, You, however, talking to believers, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, and then he says, in case we aren't missing the point, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. There's no such thing as a Christian who does not have the Spirit of God indwelling them. There are many who teach differently than that. The Bible is very clear, uh, however, on these things. Everyone who belongs to Christ by faith has the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. If you are a believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you even now. If we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, then we abide in fellowship 
with God. If we don't have the spirit of Christ, as, as Paul says, then we are not his yet. It's really that simple. In his book, uh, Old Paths, J.C. Ryle uh, writes the following. He says, The indwelling of God the Holy Spirit is the common mark of all true believers in Christ. It is the shepherd's mark on the flock of the Lord Jesus, distinguishing them from the rest of the world. It is the goldsmith's stamp on the genuine sons of God, which separates them from the dross of false professors. It is the king's own seal on those who are his peculiar people, proving them to be his own property. It is the earnest, or the pledge, which the Redeemer gives to his believing disciples while they are in the body as a pledge of the full and complete redemption yet to come in the resurrection morning. This is the case of all believers. They all have the Spirit. There's no such thing as a Christian who does not have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. You don't have, it's not some second thing that you have to wait for after your conversion. And then in, in case that wasn't clear enough, Ryle follows up with this. He says, let it be distinctly understood that he who, who has not the Spirit has not Christ. He who has not Christ has no pardon of his sins, no well-grounded hope of being saved. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Christ. There's no such thing as having one or the other. The gifts of the Holy Spirit and his work within us uh, are in some ways the primary evidence uh, or proof of our salvation. The gift of God's Spirit is the proof of our salvation. It's by the work of the Holy Spirit, for example, that we are born again. That we are born again and made alive in Christ. In, in John chapter 3, remember Jesus talking to Nicodemus about being born again? John chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, the Lord Jesus says the following to him. He says, do not marvel, you know, don't be amazed, don't be shocked. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So he's making born again and born of the Spirit to be the same thing. The one is the same as the other. They're interchangeable terms. If you're born again, what are you born again by? Or who are you born again by? The Holy Spirit of God. It is the Holy Spirit who works faith in you so that we believe in the gospel of Christ and are saved. It is the Holy Spirit who sanctifies you as a believer so that you are more, than, more and more conformed uh, throughout time uh, to, the, to the likeness of Jesus Christ in this life. It is the Holy Spirit himself who seals you for the day of redemption, Ephesians 4.30, and is himself the seal and guarantee of your inheritance in Christ, Ephesians 1, verses 13 to 14. Romans 8.16, Paul says that the Spirit himself, quote, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God through faith in Christ. All that is the work of the Holy Spirit in you. So far, so good. The possession of the Holy Spirit as the gift of God is the evidence that we have fellowship with God. But here's the, here's the question. How then are we to know whether God has given us of his spirit? 
there's, there's the question we have to come with an answer to. Now, some claim maybe you've been exposed to these kinds of teachings. Some would claim that we are to know whether, we, whether or not we have the gift of God's spirit by means of some kind of mystical or emotional experience. Others sometimes will say that you know you have this, the gift of God's spirit whether, you know, whether or not you speak in tongues or some other such so-called sign gift. I, I remember a friend of mine in the Navy who struggled mightily with this. He was told by, by someone in a Pentecostal church, one of the leaders of their church, that if he didn't speak with tongues, he wasn't saved. Ridiculous, blasphemous thing to tell someone. What an awful thing for someone to tell a sincere and genuine believer and I won't go into a rabbit trail on this, but I don't even think personally that what they call speaking in tongues is what the Bible teaches in the first place. And so you know what he told me he did? He faked it. He, he kind of, you know, over time found out, you know, figured out what it sounded like. And so he could kind of mimic it. And he was pretty sure he told me afterward a lot of other people were doing the exact same thing. Well, does that lead to assurance? No, how could it? In some ways, I think it led to despair. I don't know if he ever actually came to faith in Christ or not, or what, if he's walking with the Lord now, but what an awful thing to deal with. Is that how we are to know if we're saved? Is that how we are to know if we have the Holy Spirit indwelling within us? No, no such thing. John says nothing, nothing about any such thing, does he? In fact, in our text, John gives us two rather simple tests, so to speak, uh, two, two interrelated questions to how we may know whether or not God has given us of his Holy Spirit. First, simply put, we are to look for the evidence of the Holy Spirit's work within us. And the evidence pointed to in our text is at least twofold, two things. Now, these are not the only things in the letter that John mentions. John elsewhere, First uh, John 2.29, he also adds this, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him, born of God. So there's, there's the obedience test as well, but John focuses on two other things in our text. Uh, the first evidence of the Spirit's work in you that we are to look for is first and foremost that we confess Christ. We confess our faith in Christ. Look again at verses 14 to 15. John writes this, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. There's the first one. Now this is no mere intellectual assent or acknowledgement of bare historical facts. Saving faith is not just passing a Christian history exam or a history quiz, although it certainly includes those things. Believing and assenting to the history of what happened, especially in the person and work of Christ, is part of faith, but it is not the same thing as saving faith. To confess these things isn't just to say, yes, I agree, they happened. To confess these things is to confess one's faith in Christ, that we, we not only assent or agree with the fact that he's the Son of God, but that we believe in him as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. That's the difference. John tells us that he and the other apostles had seen, he says, seen with their own eyes and testified of the gospel of Christ. And what, how did he summarize 
it's a very brief summary. How did, how did John summarize the gospel of Christ that he testified to? He says that the Father has sent him, his Son, to be the Savior of the world. That's the Reader's Digest version, uh, the condensed version of the gospel and, and the testimony of, of the apostles. John Stott writes the following. He says, much Christian truth is contained in the straightforward affirmation of verse 14. Here is the essence of the gospel. In other words, the fact that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, he calls that the essence of the gospel. In fact, there's so much Christian truth contained in verses 13 to 15 that I really can't do it justice in one sermon. We certainly can't hope to do it justice of all the things that John says and implies. But just so, so the fact that we don't mistakenly think that John is giving us some kind of minimalist creed. You know, some people just want to boil things down so far as to not have to worry about certain things. Uh, this is not a minimalist creed at all. Uh, but just think, think of just a few of the things that John teaches us in these short three verses. First and foremost, in, John, in, in John's words in verses 13 to 15, he teaches explicitly the fundamental article and truth of the Christian faith, and that is the doctrine of the Trinity. In verse 13, he talks about God having what? given us of his Holy Spirit. Then in verse 14, he speaks of the Father sending whom? His Son to be the Savior of the world. So God gives us his Spirit. He sent forth his Son to be the Savior of the world. And then, and then as if that weren't enough, in verse 15, what does he say? Everyone who truly believes and abides in God, quote, confesses that Jesus is what? The Son of God. There's no getting around the doctrine of the Trinity here, nor should we ever want to do such a thing. It's clearly proclaimed all through this letter, all through the scriptures in many ways. So here we see both the doctrine of the Trinity as well as the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ, the Son of God, being taught and affirmed explicitly by the Apostle John. That Those things are what we confess to believe, those of us who have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. That's what he leads us to believe and to confess. Now the Gnostics, the false teachers that John had to deal with in his day, they denied these things, didn't they? They denied the Trinity. They denied the incarnation of Christ. And in doing that, they placed themselves firmly outside of the Christian faith altogether. We have many, many cults that do the same things today. The Jehovah's Witnesses deny the Trinity. They deny the deity of Christ. They call themselves Christians when they knock on your door, but they are not. They don't, they, don't confess, they don't have the work of the Holy Spirit testifying in them that Jesus is the Son of God. They say he's a God with a small g. He's kind of God, as if there's such a thing as almost God. An idiotic thing to say, to say the least. In addition to the Trinity and the incarnation of Christ, we, we also see implied the doctrine of sin. And the doctrine of the atonement of Christ is implied here. Why? Because Christ is sent by the Father to do what? Or to be what? The Savior of the world. The fact that the world needs a Savior implies sin, which John has dealt with earlier in the, in the letter in chapter 1. And also, elsewhere in this very letter, he talks about Christ being the propitiation for the sins of the world 
as well. How is he the savior of the world? By being the propitiation uh, for the sins of the world, as John said. So the, the fact that there's a savior implies a need to be saved and a means by which sinners can be saved, which is the cross of Christ. Here we also see something that's rather offensive to many today and always has been. We see the exclusivity of the gospel, don't we? Because Christ as being called the savior of the world means he's the only savior. There's salvation in no one else. When John testifies and tells us that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world, he is telling us the way F.F. F. Bruce puts it, the widest scope of the saving purposes of God. It's worldwide. It's worldwide. The Lord Jesus came to, say, to say, seek and to save, rather, the lost, Luke 19.10, and not among the Jews only, but among the Gentiles, the nations as well. The gospel of Christ, Paul says in Romans 1.16, is, quote, the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. That's everybody. If you want to say there's two kinds of people in this world, in a sense, that's one way uh, to put it. That's why the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be preached to the very ends of the earth. Mark 16, 15, Acts 1, 8. And what is the result of that? What will be the result of God's people, the apostles and everyone after him, after them, Preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. Listen to this again. Revelation 7, 9 to 10, uh, John says this. After this I looked, John's seeing a vision. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. And where are they from? From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. <clears throat> Is everyone saved? No, but there's going to be quite a few. No man can number it, that great multitude, from every, every tribe, nation, tongue, and place. The Bible does not teach universalism. Either it does not say that all people uh, go to heaven when they die. All people do not go to heaven when they die. All roads do not lead to the same place. There are not many ways to heaven, but the Lord Jesus, John tells us, is the savior of the world. He has saved, is saving, and will save such a great multitude of sinners that no one on that last day will be able to count them all. And they will be from where? Every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages. Why? Because Jesus and Jesus alone is the Savior of the world and there is no other. That Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world also means he's, again, he's the only Savior. Acts 4.12 says this, there is salvation, what? In no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Must. There's no plan B. There's no other Savior. God the Father did not send his only begotten Son to humble himself to the point of the death on a cross in order to make him one Savior among many. 
Christ did not take the wrath of God for our sins upon himself on the cross, merely so that you and I could all come to God on our own terms, in our own chosen way. The name of Jesus is the only name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And everyone who is born of the Holy Spirit of God believes in him alone for salvation from sin and confesses that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. So that's the first evidence, the confession of our faith in Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. The second evidence or proof of the work of the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit in us that John gives us in our text is that we abide in the love of God. We confess our faith and we abide in the love of God. Look at verse 16 one more time. It says, John writes, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. And then he says it again. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. You might remember back in verse 8, John said that also, that God is love And his argument here is much the same as it was there, that because God is love, love isn't part of God, love isn't just something God does. God is love. His essence is love, just like it's also holiness and truth and goodness and all these things. Because God is love, whoever truly has fellowship with God and abides with him and in him by faith in Christ and by the work of the Spirit will necessarily abide in that love. Abiding in the love of God is evidence of the Spirit's work in us and of us being born of God. Simply put, it is impossible, impossible for someone to be born of God and to abide in him and have God abide in them without also abiding in that love of God. And what does that include? It includes both love of God as well as the love of the brethren. The love of God and the love of the brethren must be evident in your life. If you're a believer, it will be evident in your life. John Calvin sums up John's statement this way. He says, for from faith to love, he reasons this way. By faith, remember we're confessing Christ, by faith, God dwells in us and God is love then, Wherever God abides, love ought to be there. Hence it follows that love is necessarily connected with faith. So I'll ask this morning, do you love the brethren? If you want to know, should I have assurance that I'm a believer and that I am saved and I can know I have eternal life, do you love the brethren? Do you love your fellow believers in Christ, your family in the Lord? It doesn't sound like a very exciting evidence to look for, but it's the evidence the scripture tells us to look for. We want to have ecstatic experiences or speak in tongues or some kind of fantastic thing, and God says, do you love the brethren? Do you have a sincere, not perfect, but sincere love for your brothers and sisters in the Lord? Do you love God? Do you love the Lord because in Christ he first loved you? That only happens by the work of the Holy Spirit. We don't love God unless he loves us first and sheds forth his spirit within us. Do you confess your faith that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world? That's what John, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells you to look for. If you want to have assurance of your salvation, those are the things that we are to look for. 
If those things are true of you, if you love God, love the brethren, confess your faith in Christ as the Son of God, then you have good cause to see this as evidence of God having given you of his Holy Spirit and of your truly being in the estate of salvation. You have then in the words that we mentioned from J.C. Ryle earlier, if you have that, you have, quote, the common mark of all true believers in Christ and the shepherd's mark on the flock of the Lord Jesus, distinguishing you from the rest of the world. It's not sign gifts. It's not fantastic experiences and, and mountaintop things. It's do you love the brethren? Do you confess your faith in Christ as the Son of God? If, you, if those things are true of you, rejoice and, and know that's the work of the Holy Spirit within you. Without the work of the Holy Spirit within you, those things would not be in your life. You would not love the brethren, and you certainly wouldn't confess that Christ is the Son of God. By this you may know that you have eternal life in Jesus Christ and may be assured of your salvation in him. To God be the glory. Amen.